We're going to be in the book of Luke. I'm going to be jumping right in with you guys as you study through the book of Luke. We did this in the Terranova family a couple years ago. And so when Elliot, uh, or not Elliot, I'm sorry, when Don shared with me that we'd be going through the book of Luke, I was happy to, to jump right in. On the ride over here, I actually was listening to uh, the, the Bono memoir or autobiography. If you don't know who that is, he's the lead singer of U2. Um, but I was listening to that, and it reminded me of something that I, that I think is true that I wanted to talk about, and that is how much of our lives are marked by significant pivot points or just like change moments. And sometimes those pivot points are planned. I think, you know, from if I think about my own life, I think maybe the my initial career or maybe even getting married was planned. And sometimes these major pivot points totally catch us off guard. And even in Bono's memoir, uh, he talks about his mother dying when he was, I think, 10 or 12. I don't quite remember. And that, that major moment in his life marks like the first quarter of the book as he talks about his mother dying. Our lives are marked by these major pivot points. And the ones that catch us off guard remind us that we don't truly author our own story, do we? We don't truly captain our own ships. And these pivotal moments seem to well up in us like a sense to reconsider, a sense of where do we really belong? What does our life really mean? And so as we flip into Luke chapter five today, we're gonna see one of these moments in somebody's lives, one of these pivotal, critical moments. But more than just hearing a story about a guy 2,000 years ago, I hope today is an invitation to be that story, to take part in change. There is no greater pivot point available to you than a proper intersection of your life with the person of Jesus Christ. The king that you're being exposed to as you guys work through the study in Luke was and still is a life-changing king. If you wanted a title for my sermon, that's it, a life-changing king. So Luke chapter five, if you have a Bible, if you aren't already there, I hope you are. If you have it on a glowing rectangle, click that open, that's good. Poke the buttons that get you to Luke five. I'm gonna read verses one through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, this is the person of Jesus, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's also known as the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and they were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus's knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken in. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. 
All right, let me pause just for a moment and pray, and then we'll, we'll get into this. Father, I really do believe that your son, Jesus Christ, still is a life-changing king. I know that to be true of my story. I am positive that is true of so many stories in this room. And so, Spirit, would you move today? And if there are places where our lives need to change so that we can become more like you, we can follow you more faithfully, would you do that through this text and through our time together? Father, if there's places we need to be comforted, comfort us. If there's places we need to be challenged, challenge us. We believe your word can do this. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so my church would be laughing at me, but I'm about to give you a two-point sermon. Now, most every single week they laugh because I always give them three. But you have two. You're welcome. Uh, These are the two things we're going to work through as we look at Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at a life changed. We're going to look at the two main characters, basically, that are in the story. That's Simon and Jesus. So we're going to look at a life changed. That's Simon. And then we're going to look at Jesus, the one who changes lives, or the life changer. Pretty simple. With me? All right, I like feedback, so don't feel bad about talking back to me during the whole time. That's totally good. Simon, the one who has his life changed in this story. This is Simon. If you're familiar with more of the Bible, this is Simon who would later go on to become known as Peter. In fact, in the passage, it does even refer to him as Simon Peter. This is the one whom Jesus would say ultimately at some point, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. And for some of you with some back, this is what is held in church tradition as the first pope of the Catholic church, Simon. In a span of about three years, this one, simple, blue-collar, everyday fisherman would go on to become Peter, one of the prominent pastors in the first church in three years. That's a pastoral training process. But for today, this is a significant moment in Simon, Simon Peter's life. But it's more than just a moment for Simon Peter. I actually think when we watch this process unfold, what's here before us is a window into how any of our lives can be changed and reoriented to the person of Jesus. I see in here Simon modeling for us a pathway of discipleship. So I have three things here that are on the screen. Lean and listen, obey in faith, low and lifted. And I think this pathway, just put all cards out on the table, I think this pathway is actually really helpful. If any of you are either curious about the person of Jesus or brand new into your journey with Jesus, this pathway I think is gold. All right, lean and listen. The passage opens up. We get on one occasion, and then we're told of this story about Jesus's magnetism, that there is a crowd pressing in to follow him. I think we can kind of capture like in our minds, maybe like paparazzi or like sports where people are just trying to rush in to get an autograph. There just seems to be this pressing in on the person of Jesus. But did you, but did you hear why? They're pressing in on the person of Jesus. They're pressing in to hear him teach. He has and he is amazing them by what he is saying. So they're leaning in, they're pressing in, they're seeking him out, they're following him, they're wanting more. They are living out Jeremiah 29, 13 that says, those who seek me will find me. Like There's just an urgency to their chasing after the person of God. But even in here, There's something that Luke records for us that I think is theologically rich but could easily be overlooked. It's not just that they want to press in to hear him teach. 
They're pressing in so that they hear the word of God. Do you hear that connection? Right? What they're saying, what they're pressing into, what they're leaning into is that when Jesus speaks, they hear God. Or Jesus' words are God's words. It's not just to hear him teach. There's a real sense of a connectivity between Jesus' teaching and God's words. The first step of discipleship that is great for all of us, lean in and listen to Jesus. Lean in and listen. Pursue his words by reading the Bible as though you're listening to him talk to you. And listen, we're told that the crowd is amazed at what he's teaching. If, if what Jesus has to say that's recorded in the scriptures does not amaze you or draw out wonder or at, at least confound you, <laughs> then I might just say, you should just keep on reading. Because some of the stuff that Jesus has to say is insane in some ways on paper. He says stuff like, to see him is to see God himself. He says stuff like, I have the authority to forgive your sins. He says stuff like, I am the only way for you to get to heaven. He says stuff like, your thinking condemns you just as much as your actions. Like just, those are not simple statements. They're amazing ideas. They're radical ideas. He's either a lunatic or he's divine. Jesus is going to bring us all to this crossroad of what we feel about his teaching. I tend to side with Simon Peter, who would later on be recorded as saying, but where else do I go? For you have the words of eternal life. The words of Jesus are often the catalyst for life change. Lean in and listen up. The second thing, and this carried, if we kind of move through the story a little bit more, Jesus is teaching the crowd, but to get some space, he bogarts Simon's boat. Simon obliges, I guess, takes him out onto the water a little bit, and Jesus teaches, and we don't have any of what Jesus teaches here recorded. The story here pivots to a very private conversation. And the story shifts at this point. Jesus was speaking to a crowd. Now the bulk of the story, he is speaking to one. Now if you spend any time tracking with Jesus through the Gospels, he has a tendency to do this. When the crowds press in on him, he tends to see individuals. His focus narrows. And often who he hones in on probably is going to catch us by surprise. It's often the marginalized, the overlooked, the downcast, the uneducated. In this story, it's a simple fisherman lingering on the outskirts of this crowd, working nearby. I think there's a window into God's heart here I don't want us to miss. At this moment in human history, there is approximately 7.9, I Googled this, so this is, here's some research for you. 7.9 billion people in the world today. There's approximately 332 million people in the US. There's approximately 1.4 million in New Hampshire. There's approximately 44,000 in the city of Concord. And I don't know what this room holds. What are we looking at, 100 to 125 here right now? But listen to me. In that sea of humanity, 
God sees you. I truly believe that. That in the sea of humanity, God can see you. He is great enough to see every single person on the face of the globe in this country, in this state, in this city, in this room. And he is good enough to see you. If you think he does not want to see you, I promise you he does. If you think he can't see you, I promise you he does. Jesus wants to see and talk with each and every one of us. Back to Simon. So we get into the conversation with Simon. So he says to Simon, put out deeper and put your nets down to catch fish. And now Simon in his voice enters the story and his first words are master. And so you should hear in there kind of like a respectful sir, kind of just deference to somebody who's probably above him in the social status of the day. Master, he explains to them, we fished all night. Now my dad's a fisherman, you might be a fisherman and fishing at night is a great time to fish or at least dawn and dusk is a great time to fish. And he explains to them that they fished all night, which it's not even just like the hunger schedule of fish. They didn't have monofilament back then, right? So the nets that they were using, the fish could actually see during the day. So the preferred time to fish was at night so that they could actually capture the fish too. So all sorts of reasons why nighttime is preferred time, but they caught nothing all last night. And so there's a hint in Peter of like, so it's stupid, silly for us to fish right now, but because you say it, I'll do it. Now, I don't want to impose tone into the text. We have no idea what Peter's tone here was. Was it probably like I would be in snarky? Was it very pragmatic? Like that doesn't really just make sense. Was it hopeful? Well, because you say it, we'll do it. I I don't know exactly what Peter's tone here, but whatever the tone is, I, I, I think I find a way to resonate here. Because in my own life, as I follow Jesus, what I've tend to notice, maybe you have too, is that that which the Lord calls us to or asks us to do sometimes doesn't make a ton of sense. Sometimes it's just not super rational to me at the time. Jesus will bring you to a crossroad with his teaching. He's also gonna bring you to a crossroad with your actions and he's going to invite you to step into a place of faith, to trust him, to obey him in ways and in places that you may be reluctant to go or in ways that just may not make a ton of sense to you or just seem normative at the time. And I find it interesting that there's no, there's no response from Jesus to Peter to this. And almost, it almost just like there's this sense that Jesus just kind of gives the space to Peter to make up his mind. Would he obey or would he not? And it's here, after a step of obedience by Peter or Simon into the unknown, into the uncertain, into the moment of weakness, the vulnerability, the potential foolishness here. It is here at this moment that the power of God and the presence of God is made known through a miracle. Now, make no mistake. I think what this story records is a miracle in the mass of fish being caught. So much nets were breaking and boats sinking. I think it's a miracle. Now, I'm not gonna get into unpacking a miracle with you today. Like, I just personally believe that God created everything from nothing in the very beginning. So that to me is a greater miracle and I believe that. So this is just like child's play. So I'm not like, I don't think this is that hard to believe for a God who can create everything from nothing, personally. But that's not my point here today. I wanna unpack, 
I want to unpack the process here or the pattern that we see. Because notice when the miracle takes place. It comes after Simon's obedience. Now, we could probably also sit here today and theologically debate for a while as to which one of these things comes first. Obedience or faith? In my life, it's a dance. Sometimes my faith before obedience or my faith comes before my obedience and it like fuels my obedience and sometimes my obedience puts me into places where my faith is built because I interact with the powerful God of the universe. To me, it's both and and it's a vice versa. I'm not gonna sit here and debate which one comes first, but I think in this story, what we see is that obedience precedes his faith. So my encouragement to you is this. We don't always get to delay our obedience until what God asks of us makes rational sense to us. We're invited to take a step of faith. And my experience has been that when we step into those places, Jesus proves himself faithful every single time. He proves himself worthwhile following into the unknown, into the counterintuitive. And when you experience that, you'll have a point on your life map that will be about your life changing because you interacted with the power and the presence of God himself. Lean in and listen up. Take a step of obedience. And Jesus will prove himself faithful and build your faith. Next one here. Be low and be lifted up. Simon moves from calling Jesus master towards the end by calling him Lord. This is not a thing to miss. It's how he sees and understands the person of Jesus. In this story, his eyes are opened up. His heart is pierced. Because in God's kindness and mercy, the fullness of Jesus is revealed to the person of Simon. There's this deep sense that he realizes that this one that can see through the water and see all the fish can certainly see through the veneer of my skin and see all of my heart. He makes that connection. The fish are seen and caught. Simon is seen and caught and he comes undone. This holds true today for us. When we see Christ rightly, we see ourselves rightly. Who he is defines who we are. When we see him rightly for all that he is, we see ourselves rightly for all that we are not. It's the same pattern for us today. Simon falls down at Jesus' knees and he cries out, depart from me, a sinner. He has this very real sense. He is in the presence of God and his holiness and is just like, I don't belong here. You should hear echoes of Isaiah from Isaiah 6 if you're familiar with that passage too, when Isaiah gets called up into the heavens and sees the vision of God, and he's like, woe is me. Not one of us is holy like God is holy, and when we're around that kind of holiness and glory, we come undone. When we're exposed to his power and his presence and his reality is revealed to us, our reaction's very similar. I don't belong here. I don't deserve this which in one hand is kind of interesting. Why we respond that way, why we tend to respond that way. But we actually see this pattern play out across the scriptures too. We see this with Adam and Eve. 
They try to run and hide from God. Simon wants away from God. I think in us, even with ourselves, there's this tendency to assume that God is on a seek and destroy mission. That if God really knew who I was, I know who I am. And if God really was able to see all that, then certainly he wouldn't want anything to do with me. I'd be dismissed. I'd be destroyed, perhaps. I assume that God is going to be so disappointed and so appalled with the reality of my own self and my heart that I'll be kicked out, denied, dismissed. We assume, I think, there's this tendency to default, God is on a seek and destroy mission. But this is where the gospel story is fundamentally different than that. Because Jesus, God himself, is not on a seek and destroy mission. He is on a seek and save mission. That's who our God is. Now listen, you may be in this room, I don't know the stories in this room, and you may be telling yourself that you're an exception to this. Please listen to me for a minute. You are not an exception to this. I don't know who you are. I'm sure there's some really great sinners in this room. Well, I'm here, so I I know there's at least one. But I promise you, you are not a better sinner than our Jesus is a savior. There is not one person in the history of humankind that can outsin the grace of our God. You're not an exception to that. Do not tell yourself that. The enemy wants you to believe that, that God is on a seek and destroy mission for you. He is not. He is on a seek and save mission. So it's okay to lower yourself, lower your guard, confess the reality of who you are. Jesus can take any and all of that and forgive it, and he can take all of our drooping heads and lift them and look us in the eye and say, don't be afraid. I love you. I forgive you. I want to be with you. And when we experience love like this, I am fully known and perfectly loved at the same time. When we experience love like this, it's like, It's almost too good to be true. But it's true in Jesus and our lives change. Lean in and listen up. Obey and have faith. Lower yourself before King Jesus and he will lift you up. Now, just to like wrap this part of the sermon up a little bit, that is not a one-time process, all right? So this is not like you do that once and it's over. I actually think this process on repeat is how disciples are formed and how we continually have life-changing moments. We continue to pursue God and seek out what he reveals in the person of Jesus Christ. We respond to that over and over again. We get it right sometimes, we get it wrong sometimes. We see this in the person of Simon Peter all throughout the gospels. And then there's this sense of whenever we go to God, because he's revealing, we're seeking him, we respond to that, he's always sending us out afterwards to then go and reflect it. So at our church in Terranova, we talk about this as the discipleship process. Pursue God, seek him revealed, respond to him, and then go and reflect that. That process on repeat is a pathway of discipleship for your life to change and for pivotal stories to come into your life. But I want to shift here a little bit from the life changed or Simon to Jesus and the life changer. The very beginning of the story, I've gone back to Adam and Eve a couple times, but the very beginning of the story, uh, one of the commands that God gave to Adam and Eve was, be fruitful and great, glad. 
Glad you guys got that. That's that's good. David's been doing a good job. Good job, Don, David, Elliot. Be fruitful and multiply. At the end of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says to his disciples, go and make disciples. I actually think these two things are deeply linked. And I think Jesus is just reorienting the original commission to the great commission. And be fruitful and multiply. Certainly, I think we think about that in a physical sense. But go and make disciples is that in a spiritual sense. All right? And so I think to Simon here, we get a very similar thing, is that from this point forward, you're going to help me catch men and women. He is being invited into the work of Jesus to seeking and saving the lost. Right? This is a primary reason you and I exist. And every follower of Christ is going to get this same calling put upon them once they step into following Christ as well. Every person that Jesus calls to him, he is then going to send out on his behalf to be fruitful and multiply, to go and make disciples, to go catch those who might be lost and help me save them. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes that idea is a very daunting reality. And so I like to simplify things down sometimes and make things a little bit easier so it can give us handles so it's not so overwhelming to like have us here like you are now an ambassador for christ how do you like that or just to think like it's, it's no small task to go and reach the lost this is a monumental calling now we can't be like jesus but we can certainly learn from him because i do think he was the greatest missionary who ever lived right so i have four things i think we can draw out by watching the person of Jesus in the story that can inform you, give you handles, make it tangible for you for what it means to join him on mission. Be known, be narrow, be needy, and be near. I'll try to work through these relatively quickly. Jesus does some very ordinary and human things in this story, things that you and I probably are naturally okay at. We're told that he stands with people. He walks around a lake with people. He sits and has conversation with people. I can do those three things. Stand, sit, walk. But like a little bit deeper is like what we get here is that Jesus is known by those who aren't inherently religious. He's known by the non-believers. He is present with them. He is not distant. He is among the people around him. So be known. Have spaces in your life where you are regularly sitting with, eating, walking, talking with those who aren't following Christ right now. It's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Just have intentional spaces where you are part of a community where you might be the only believer in that, that small group and be known for being a person of the word like Jesus was known for. And I'm not saying you need to be known like Jesus, of course, is going to be a much greater theologian than you. I'm not saying you got to have a theological degree and be known for that. I'm just saying, just be known as a person of faith in a place of unbelievers. My, my wife has these stories. She's a pharmacist in our local hospital. She has these stories often, and especially when like events happen. Like she's she's the only believer in her in her workspace, and they talk to her often about like, hey, what does this mean? By the way, they just know her as somebody who goes to church and happens to be a pastor's wife. She's known, she's among, and people are drawn to her. This is, I, I'm part of a monthly scotch group. Don't hold that against me if you 
I don't know what that just, I don't know what that meant to some of you in the room. I'm sorry. But David's here, so I think I'm okay. But like, I'm part of a monthly scotch group. And the reason I'm, it's not with church folk. I know David's part of a monthly book club, right? That I think for these intentional reasons, I've, I've heard Elliot talk about this in Henniker. Like he just wants to be in and among the community and be known as somebody who loves Jesus in that context. Be known. I, can, I need to keep going. Be narrow. In a crowd of people, Jesus deals with one. It's okay for you not to bear the burden of being overwhelmed by trying to save everybody. Narrow yourself. Focus in on one or a few like Jesus does. At our church, we say it this way. Who's your one? And we just ask our people to commit themselves to having one person in their life that they are intentional with relationally. It could be a family member, it could be a friend, it could be a classmate, but they have one they're intentionally trying to live on mission with. They've narrowed their focus. They can't save everybody in North Adams, but can they possibly be a part of that one person's life-changing story? You are free to narrow your focus. Be needy. Remember, the life changing, transformative moment for Simon in this story came at the moment of the miracle when the power and the presence of God was made known to him. So go perform miracles. (laughs) No, we can't be like Jesus in this way, but we have access to this same God who is still showing up in people's lives in powerful ways like this Many of us in the room are here because he has done that for us. So what can we do? We can be earnestly praying, asking God to do that which only he can do for our one. Are we committed? Are we needy? Are we earnest? Are we, hum- are we reliant upon God himself to do the work of saving through us? Be needy and reliant in prayer. If, if a room like this, if 100 people in Concord are earnestly and regularly committed to praying for one other person in Concord, I believe God will do something with that. Keep at it. Keep being needy and known and narrow. Last thing, be near. Jesus, after Peter's confession, starts with, don't be afraid. Well, I think that's an interesting phrase at the end of this. And so what is... Peter afraid of. And maybe there's this certainty of like this holiness and his otherness compared to Peter's sinfulness. I think that's a piece of it. But I wonder if there's another thing here that Peter's possibly afraid of that Jesus is speaking to. And are we clued into that by Peter's reaction to after the phrase? Because after Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's here that we're told, then Simon and everybody with him left everything and followed him. All right, you with me on that? So I think sometimes it's helpful for us, especially if we've been journeying with Jesus for a while, to remember that fundamentally the gospel calls us from something and it calls us to something. All right, so it's gonna call you from something, probably yourself, and it's gonna call you to something like the person of Jesus. Or if I said this another way, to say yes to Jesus is inherently going to mean that you're going to have to say no to something else that's currently in your life. And the truth is, that's often hard and scary of what we might have to say no to or leave behind. Identities that we've held on to, communities that we've been a part of, 
comforts that we long for. This is just saying yes to any new and unknown thing. That means we have to say no to a known and comfortable thing. That's a hard thing for any of us, is it not? It's scary. So like Jesus, draw near, be near to those who are going through this process, to those facing this decision. Empathize with the sense that initially saying yes to Jesus could feel like a loss. Now here's, this just, I've seen this play out. We have somebody in our church who had to walk away from her family because she was going to give up Catholicism to be part of our church. And she got baptized in our church and she knew that was gonna drive a wedge between her and her mother. That's no small thing. To say yes to Jesus felt like a loss. You with me what I'm trying to say there? I have a friend who came to Christ and he came out of like this, this beat poet. <laughs> Love him. But in his process of coming to Christ, he realized the sense of like, I don't know as if, I, if I should still be part of this community of atheist poets that I've been running with for five years. Now, there's more to it than that. And I'm not saying that God is calling like to... Like the complete, but I'm just trying to draw out the sense of feeling that he felt, right? The sense of community that he had known that this might change. Honestly, I think we need to be sensitive to this when we talk about the LGBTQ community. There is a real sense of community there that when they come to Christ, they're gonna need people to walk with them in a very close and real way and empathize what it means to say yes to Jesus and that that might feel like a loss of so much stuff that they've known. You with me on that? Be near. Share that burden. And say, don't be afraid. Jesus is worth it. Take the next step. Keep following. I'm right here with you. Because folks are going to need help making that decision, especially in the early days of following Jesus. All right. Jesus is a king who changes lives. Allow him to author these life-changing moments for you by leaning in, leaning up, by taking steps of obedience and having faith. Be low before you and he will lift you up. And Jesus is a king who changes lives and is inviting you to join him on that work. So be known, be narrow, be needy, and be near. This is the best use of your days on earth for his glory, for your satisfaction, and for the good of those around you. Let me pray. Father, in a very personally and selfish way, thank you for your kindness that you caused my life to intersect with the person of Jesus. I'm incredibly grateful. And I wish I had time here to even give testimony to your goodness through all my years. Father, I pray that for all of us in this room, there can be moments of today of just gratitude for the places you have intersected our lives and and changed our lives for good. Father, I pray that your spirit uses us to go out into the week and actually take part in your work of seeking and saving others. Father, may, the, may, the, may this church be known in this community. May its people be known in all the spaces you're gonna scatter them this week as people of your word. 
continue to remind them of the desperate need they have for you in prayer. And Father, may this not just be a community that's known for its truth of the word, but also for the grace and the compassion of its people, its hospitality and its welcoming of those to find a home here journeying after Christ. Father, may you bless and honor this community. It's a privilege to stand here before you or before them and share you. Continue to do your good work here among them. It's in your name we pray, amen.